Welcome to Rope Access Tips, Tricks and Chats. As always, I'll be your host Lee Greenwood and I'd like to say welcome to this episode. This week we've got another sit-down chat with an old friend of mine, Alastair Rugg. We've known each other for, well, 25 plus years I think it is. I got him into Rope Access back in the day. But we're going to have a bit of a chat with him, but one of the main things we're going to be talking about is what it's like doing... FIFO work, fly in, fly out, um, whether you're on sort of casual work, grabbing it as and when, or if you're on regular two-week swings. Alistair did uh, a big stint over in WA um, for quite a few years on a regular two and two, so we're going to sort of unpack that a little bit. As always, if it's your first time here, uh, please subscribe to the podcast. If you could share it with uh, any of your mates, that'd be awesome. Let them know that we've got this information out there. Some uh, tips, some tricks, and some chats. Well, let's get straight into uh, chatting to Alistair. So, hi, Alistair. Thanks for coming in and chatting to us today. How are you doing? I'm very well, Lee. How are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Um, Surviving uh, Sydney COVID and all of that stuff, but doing all right, mate. Doing all right. Challenging times. Indeed, it is. But yeah, thanks for taking the time to... Uh, sit down with us. Um, do you want to tell everybody who's listening in sort of a bit about your backstory, about sort of how you got into rope access and how you ended up in sunny Australia? Uh, well, uh, as a lot of people will know, um, you're really one of the people to blame to uh, drag me uh, into the rope access industry. Yeah, sorry about uh, that. Yes, uh, I've never forgiven you for it. Um, no, uh, so you and I met when we were at college doing... Uh, teaching or learning to teach outdoor pursuits um, and our paths kind of kept crossing um, later afterwards but then uh, I think uh, I got to a point where I was teaching outdoor pursuits and it was basically just kind of glorified babysitting and you um, asked me if I wanted to catch up with these uh, people that you'd uh, just joined this company with um, and I, I think we went to we met in the Peak District where we went uh, bridge swinging. Um, I don't know if you remember that. I do remember that. Uh, rope access meets dangerous sports, I think would be the best way I could describe that. Uh, look, I always look back on that day with quite uh, uh, some hilarity uh, with the fact that um, so we sat up on the bridge. Uh, we realised that, that kind of the way the bridge was set up, you kind of had to really abseil down um, in order to clip on the ropes and then swing. Uh, and after about a few hours of setting up the ropes, etc., uh, they wanted you to jump off and try it first. And you were a little bit hesitant and said, why don't we shove a, a bag off the side and just check to see if it, if it's okay, uh, which was probably the best decision ever because the uh, bag flew uh, under the bridge, out the other side and went straight into a dead tree and it pretty much exploded the dead tree which would have been you if you'd... Uh... So a few adjustments were made and then uh, we all jumped over um, over the, the side one at a time, came back up. Uh, and then it wasn't until uh, we were... It was the very late evening and we were just packing up that uh, I think Carrie wandered further up the track. I found the actual bridge that we were supposed to be bridge swinging off, which was, uh, yes, all, all good fun and games. But from there, um, uh, I came down... Uh, Kent and um, did my rope access ticket, came a level one. Um, specialist asked me on the Friday evening if I wanted to go and work on the New Zealand Embassy in London uh, to put up, currently, Zach mentioned it was like something ridiculous, like a 30 by 40 metre, what was supposed to be a, classified as a banner, but it was a glorified spinnaker um, side of the embassy. Um, then from there, I think you... Um, we did a few jobs on the, um, oh, what was, it was um, Butlins. The, uh, they got mini Millennium Domes and we travelled around the, the country, you and I, uh, and, and the team, um, doing work on each of these Millennium Domes. And at the, I mean, there's many stories to tell during that, including our driving, changing drivers while moving, but that's another subject. Um <laughs> And then you asked me if I wanted to come down and work more permanently. I think a, a month later, I did. And I think the first job 
was um, Dartford Bridge uh, with the um, jet washing. Do you remember that one? Oh, I do remember that one. I was talking about that one a couple of weeks ago. Um, I believe you were on the, uh, weren't you on the ropes with a, uh, a jet washer? I think I, this is how I remember that job. We turned up in, uh, specialist had the Land Rover Defenders. We turned up in one of the Land Rovers and we had a jet washer in the back. And oh. they, they said, oh, no, we've got a jet washer for you to use. And, we, and so we drove down and we set up and then I phoned them up and said, oh, where's the jet washer? And they said, oh, you should be able to see it. It's coming down the road now. And this truck, this big lorry, turned up with this jet washer on the back that went up to like 50,000 PSI or something ridiculous for us just to uh, jet wash off a load of uh, gunk that had gone down one of the legs on the uh, Dartford River crossing. Is that, is that how you remember it? Uh, yeah, I remember the um, it, it being on the lorry and it, it wasn't, I mean, the lorry just did jet washing. It didn't do anything else. So it was, wasn't a small bit of kit. And I remember the girth on the hose was just mammoth. I remember having to hang that on a separate rope just because it weighed an absolute ton. Um, but then I, I remember you, know, you positioned yourself so that you could see me and you could see the uh, the uh, lorry driver who was controlling the, the, the pressure um, on the jet washer. And then I was hanging off the ropes off one of the pillars. I think that was about... Maybe about 60 minutes high. And um, I was jet washing away and you were just getting the, the guy to just up the pressure just a little bit and then just a little bit more and just a little bit more. Uh, meanwhile, I'm trying to hold myself steady uh, in midair while jet washing and slowly but surely as the pressure keeps going up, I'm finding it harder and harder to try and counterbalance myself to the point of where you'd got the pressure so uh, a lot higher and then I just span around and it was just like a, a, a mushroom plume of uh, me spinning around in the jet washer just kind of, um, and I think at that point you were possibly lying on the floor laughing. I think, oh, I, think I can remember lying on the floor, try, wetting myself laughing, trying to tell the guys to turn the jet washer off whilst watching you spin around about 10 times on the ropes. Um, yeah, that was, uh, that's pretty much how I remember it. But um then didn't one of the ops managers turn up? Uh, the, the ops manager wasn't the most popular, but uh, yeah, you, you got me to just keep jet washing. The, he, he turned in, he was on the top side of the uh, pillar, uh, and I just kept kind of directing the water so that he keep getting kind of. I think, I think I remember that he, uh, we wanted to pull you over a little bit. He turned up in his reflective jacket, and I said, Oh, can you? just pulled a, pull him over a little bit because he needs to get a little bit over to the left. And so he was there and he had his jacket sort of all pulled up so he couldn't see what was going on. And you were pretty much just spraying him with water for about two minutes. And he was there going, has he done yet? I said, oh no, one more minute, one more minute. Yeah, so he walked away. Absolutely saturated. In his uh, hush puppies and his uh, farrah pants or whatever he was wearing. Yeah, so that was a good job. I remember that one. Yeah, that, that, that was a good job. And then look... Um, I loved specialists for one, uh, the guys that we worked with, um, and it was kind of, it was, it was like a family, um, and the, the variety of work uh, was anything from bird netting to removing drainage from expensive hotels to um, worked in flower silos in Newcastle to cake silos, not cake silos, well, concrete silos, they called it a cake silo on concrete uh, manufacturers and yeah, er everything in between. Uh, worked on some amazing uh, buildings in London. Uh, worked on Windsor Castle, Buckingham Palace. Yeah, so um, got to see places that you wouldn't normally get to see. And it, it was great. as was uh, quite sad when um, that came into an end. And then there was obviously um, the Darfur Bridge painting that. That was uh, probably uh, one of the Arduous jobs where um, a lot of tempers got frayed, working nights after nights in trying conditions, trying to uh, get the cables painted. And then, unfortunately, uh, specialist reduced, shall we say, well, um, can took, took them over. So uh, I think, uh, well, from there, um, carried on doing some work for them. And then um, they had a bit of a lull. Um, and a, a friend of mine, Dave Stock, 
they've been harassing me for quite some time to go and do a, an offshore ticket, which um, at the time hadn't interested me. But um, with the lull, I jumped on it. And then uh, I think uh, on the first day of the course, I was getting phone calls asking me to go offshore. By I think uh, finished on the Wednesday, I had to do a medical. Thursday, I did my rebreather. Uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, I was on the chopper going out to the Shahalian. Um, and that was the downhill slope from there. Um, working for a company called Ian and I in Aberdeen. Um, met the old uh, other ginger ninja, Mike McDonald. We then uh, did uh, lots of uh, tank repairs and um, tank inspections on FBSOs and oil tankers. Um, that got to me to see some very interesting parts of the world, some parts of the world that I still don't know now where we, we ended up. I've uh, been through the Suez Canal on the tanker. Uh, we, uh, in, I think on that particular tanker, we were rafting the ballast tanks. So that's where you the tank's still full of water to a certain degree. Um, you then got a little rubber dinghy and um, one person paddles you out and then on a swell you hop out, clip yourself into... Uh, the beam and then climb across the beam while this um, the waves are below you, while the tanker's moving up the Suez Canal. Um, I think it's uh, now frowned upon. But, uh, you know, that's uh, the industry has um, moved quite significantly since I first started with regards to safety. And, and look, um, I think uh, where we are now is, is a, a great place and with regards to safety and, and how we go about doing uh, doing work from there uh came um uh, after working in the north sea for some time um came over and uh, worked for you for a year in uh, sunny australia from uh where we we worked on various different buildings um possibly might not have had the best attitude at the time i think i parted quite hard and um, worked just as hard um possibly uh, look if um not the best thing, but um, no, it was great times. From there, loved the lifestyle in Australia. Uh, went back to the North Sea, got reminded of how cold it can be, uh, and then came back, I think, uh, two years later, where I started uh, working for various different companies at the time. Skipping between the two was one didn't have any work, I'd jump onto the other. I think at one point, uh, I actually was at one, it was the Cossack Pioneer, for Ian and I for a week or two weeks. And then um, I actually had a job for access management on the same uh, FPSO at the end of that trip. So rather than get helicoptered off uh, and then helicoptered back on, I just stayed on and uh, just changed overalls uh, and then carried on work, which was uh, quite good. I missed out on the frequent fly points, which was a bit gutting. Then... Um, did you have to uh, did you have to change rooms as well, or did they keep you in the same bunk? Kept me in the same bunk. I mean, admittedly, I actually had to point out to the um, heli operator that um, they actually had me on the flight coming out. Uh, what normally happens there is you people would come out, um, they would pass you your life jackets, uh, you'd then put them on, and then you'd get on the chopper to go back. So I pointed out that. Um, that uh, I was actually on the, the list to be coming out and I pointed out that uh, I didn't need to and it was probably easier just to stay stay put. So uh, that saved them some money. From there, I mean, that was great work, but it was incredibly hard on the family uh, just because a lot of those jobs, you'd go out for, you'd be told it was going to be three days. You'd get out there, there'd be a few delays, uh, things weren't quite ready. Uh, the scope would grow before you knew it. You were out there for three weeks. Um, and then you'd fly home. I remember one time I just I just walked in through the door. I had a phone call uh, to ask me to basically jump back on a plane, uh, head back to WA and go offshore again. So I think I said hello for half an hour before we were heading back to the airport. Uh, which didn't obviously go down well. And I think um, a lot of people have to take into account that when uh, thinking about working FIFO, whether it's uh, in the mining or offshore, etc., or, or gas plants, as I ended up, um, 
you've got to actually consider it. It's not just you, how you cope with being away uh, and being isolated, but it's also about how um, your family copes with it. Um, because uh, when I'm away, uh, my wife becomes a, a single parent. And though my daughter's now grown up, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, uh, which you possibly don't even realise when you're actually living at home. But when you're you're not here, it's uh, quite quite hard for your other half to uh, cope and make decisions and um, try and sort things out when you're not there. Uh, luckily, um, I think uh, I fell on my feet. I work for a company called Vertical Services, which was um, a great company. I should actually point out that what was one of my first experiences when I was offshore um, was, I think there was like a team of six of us uh, and all but one were uh, level threes, which was something um, like in the UK was pretty much, um, you, you'd be lucky if you ever worked with another level three. There was kind of, if you were level three, you were running a job and you had other people under you. So, um, and what I loved was the fact that um, all these people didn't have uh, a chip on their shoulder and um, we all worked incredibly well together and didn't, uh, there was no trying to one-up each other, um, which uh, previously we had quite a few experiences of uh, people trying to prove that they were better than the other. I don't know why, because um, we're all in, in it for the same reason. But uh, so it was a nice, nice, uh, relaxed uh, atmosphere, hard work, working in hot environments. Anyway, so I went and worked for Vertical Services um, at a, a gas plant called Karath Gas Plant. Um, at the time, rope access hadn't really been viewed there, um, hadn't been used. I think it had been used once previous. And our scope of work started out as just uh, looking at these cold shoes, uh, which were basically pipe supports where they'd uh, had uh, some wastage. Uh, we were there going to gauge how urgently they needed to be inspected. Um, but then they decided uh, that while we were there, could we work out, was there anything else wrong with the gas plant? And I think about nine months later, uh, we eventually finished there. I then um, jumped over to a company called Atlas, where we basically went back through and um, started doing uh, well, uh, not saying that the previous inspections weren't proper inspections, but they were more a detailed uh, scope. We had a, an ASAP inspector with us who would dangle off ropes and um, we'd basically go through the plant looking at um, how the, the plant was. It's an absolute massive gas plant. And that turned into a, a regular two and two, um, which was, to be honest, was... Um, a lot easier on the family because they knew when I was coming home. Um, I knew when I was coming home. If there was a, a family, let's say my daughter's birthday was happening, I either knew I was going to make it or I knew I wasn't going to make it. There was none of this um, points where it could change a, a drop of a hat. So um, it, it created a bit of security. Um, though, again, it, it was definitely uh, hard on the family uh, being away. Um, missing major kind of um, steps of my daughter growing up. But, you know, you do what you need to to uh, provide your, your family. Um, yeah. Um, and then, um, unfortunately, what was that, uh, 2020, uh, we got hit with the COVID. And uh, I pretty much had the option of either moving across to, to Perth doing incredibly long swings or trying to ride out this um, COVID problem. Um, now, I was very fortunate compared to, to most with uh, a regard of a, a bank of um, holiday and long service leave, but eventually that uh, ran out. And because I'd chosen not to, to go across, which was for many different reasons. One, uh, the family was obviously having to deal with COVID and then uh, during that period, my father-in-law passed away. My mother-in-law um, had a heart attack. Uh, so it was, I think it was a, the best, the right decision. But unfortunately, um, uh, I got made redundant from there after 10 years working for them. And um, now I'm back on the, the tools 
working uh, around Sydney, um, trying to do um, some uh, swings back over WA, but uh, unfortunately, um, the borders open and close like a, uh, a returning uh, a turnstile. So um, open and close. So um, yeah, that's that's where we're at at the moment. So you did. Uh, I'm, I, obviously, there's a lot of info there, uh, which is great. Um, I'm really interested in this. Um, you know, you were working for Vertical Services uh, in the gas plant. So you you had a nine month. You said the con or the job ran for about nine months. Were you on? Were you straight away when you went to the gas plant? Were you on two and twos or how was oh, you? No, no. Uh, I think it was twenty four and nines. But that, uh, the nines included your travel time. So the uh, uh, the suicide swing or the divorce swing, I think that got nicknamed, didn't it, back in uh, in WA? Because uh, hard it, on it, everybody. It was well. Look, it was probably harder on the people at um, at home than it was yep. on me, um, because previously I've been working offshore, so you were very limited to what you could take offshore. Now. I was in a position where um, after work we'd uh, do things. Um, so I think a group of us took mountain bikes up to Karatha uh, and we used to go mountain biking in the evening. I remember uh, uh, got Mike to join uh, our team and um, uh, he started uh, bringing, I think he brought his mountain bike over and then uh, I think he'd, he'd gone back to Scotland and he'd come back and it was the height of summer and we went mountain biking and uh, a Scotsman who isn't acclimatised, he, he went pink pretty quickly, uh, not just from the sun but from uh, the actual hot temperatures and trying to work incredibly hard and trying to go cycling. But yeah, look, uh, it was a great um, great atmosphere at the gas plant just because you could do things in the evening, whereas normally offshore, you could go to the gym or watch a bit of TV. There was uh, not so much entertainment and uh, you're always stuck uh, with the people, so you couldn't get away. Whereas here, it was quite good. You could go to the pub in the evening. You still had to behave yourself in regards to um, making sure that you blew zeros in the morning. But yeah, it was a great bunch of guys. Eventually, uh, that was only supposed to go for like uh, a couple of months if that but yeah they just keep adding more scope to it so it was actually quite uh, unusual to get a two and two back then uh, and it yeah it um, it was a game changer uh, I had the options of going um, and working getting kind of superstar wages um, elsewhere but I, I chose to stick with the regular two and two which uh, back then were like hen's teeth they weren't really uh, existent we uh where can I say? The, the, the good thing about the two and two was um, there was also options to do more. So if um, we had shutdowns and stuff, you probably um, because of the way swings lined up, you could end up doing like six weeks away. Um, I did choose a couple of times to to do those silly swings, which is good for the bank balance, but hard on the family. Yeah, it sounds like. Um... You know, as you said, with uh, working offshore, you're stuck on the platform or the FBSO or wherever you're stuck and you've got your room and there's a gym. Uh, if the weather's nice, maybe the helipad where you can go and jump rope. I know a lot of guys who, who that's one of their, their things they like to do or you're watching your, your movies. But with the gas plant, um, for people that don't know, you guys were living in uh, in camps, so you had your own your own room. Um, it was a bus or I know some guys bought their own vehicles so uh, and had them over there so they could just drive to the gas plant and then doing your 12-hour day, so you're there at 6 till 6. But then you come back, you can grab your food from the canteen or, as you say, you could head out you know, into town. Uh, you could go, I know you guys, a few of you guys got into your, pretty heavily into your kite surfing and your mountain biking and all of that stuff. Good um, times. Which, uh, it, sound, it sounds like a... Um, you were living the single man's life whilst at work and then coming back to the family um, for the other times, you know, you could get all of your, and I've known you a long time, so I know what you're like, get all your activities done. And then when you come back to the East Coast, obviously dealing with, you know, school, kids, all of that, you could 100% give your life to the family, which is uh, for you, I reckon, quite a good life balance, life work balance, giving you all of those outlets. So it sounds, I can see why you stuck with it for 10 years. Oh, look, um, look, 
offshore had its pros and cons. Normally, the, the good thing would be with offshore was that you'd roll out of bed, you were there. Um, and normally, uh, quite a few of the places you'd have your breakfast while the, the morning pre-start was, was happening. So, and then you'd probably have your shower at kind of quarter to, to six and then have dinner at six o'clock uh, and everything was laid out for you. Um, whereas the gas plant, you had to get a bit earlier, sort out your own breakfast, uh, sort out your lunch. Uh, then it was a kind of a, a, a 20, 25 minute trip, depending on um, shutdowns and stuff, uh, to the gas plant. So it was kind of longer days at the, the gas plant. So it swings and roundabouts, but you ha- had the option of being able to get away from everybody else. You could either be social, a social butterfly or, or just hang in your room. And I think uh, one of the things I quite liked was uh, that we um, at the gas plant used to put on barbecues in the evenings and uh, it was a good time for everybody to um, uh, get together, have a few beers, uh, wind down from uh, the, the busyness of the trips, um, you know, the, the hectic hard work, uh, working in sometimes exceedingly hot temperatures uh, and, yeah, good outlet. Uh, but you're, you're right. Um, I normally um, had did more outdoor stuff uh, while I was at work, and then I'd come home, uh, do the school runs. Um, by which time, after two weeks away, the missus would have a, a list as long as my arm of jobs that I needed to do, including feeding the dogs. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> shooting them when they're just too noisy. Just bear with me a second. No worries. You still there? Yep. So I've just grabbed the dog. We shouldn't be interrupted now. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, so um, a lot of people that I've chatted to that have worked the uh, the sort of swings and stuff like that. I know um, I remember chatting to Pete Rook. Um, he he uh, used to, um, he ran IRT in Sydney back in the late 90s, early 2000s and had a young family and then he got into the offshore stuff sort of a similar time to you, I think. And he reckoned that he saw more of his kids when he was doing the, the swings, whether it was a two-on-two-off, three-on-three-off, whatever it might be. Because when he came home, um, he was at home 100%. You know, he'd wake them up in the morning, he'd take the kids to school, he'd pick them up after school, take them to the park, do all of that stuff. Whereas when he was working around town and running a business, he was leaving the house before... They even got up. He was coming home after they sort of, you know, it was, by the time he was getting home, it was dinner time, you know, so it was sit down, have dinner, bath, bed type thing. So, um, yeah, it seems that it's it's definitely got its its plus sides um, on that side, but obviously the negative sides, as you said, um, you know, knowing that you're going to miss things that are happening, whether it's Christmas, New Year's, birthday. So it's, uh, but I always get um, a lot of people coming through my training centre. They're they're wanting the the FIFO work. They want to fly in, fly out. Um, for a young man, a single young man, I reckon it's definitely a, an option because you can go and work hard, and then uh, and then take the time off as well if you when you've got it. Definitely, um, it, it's um, definitely when I was young, free and single, it was it was perfect. Um, I mean, I remember working in the North Sea. And my two weeks away would be pretty much planning my, um, or three weeks away was pretty much planning my three weeks off. And then um, as, as you get a family, uh, look, it, it worked It worked well for me. It still works well for me. Um, I think my wife might disagree, but uh, I, your, your point about um, working in the city and actually um, spending less time at home is pretty spot on um, I mean I remember in the early days of working in London where you get up at Sparrow's Fart um, you get home when it, it's dark and late it'd collapse you'd wake up in the morning and repeat it all again um, so there's definitely um, positives for it um, and if you can make that life balance I think uh, it's also I think people have to understand it's um, it's not for everybody. It, it, there's a, there's a kind of people have this glamorous side of um, of it. Uh, and look, uh, I've worked in places where um, the, the food was terrible. Uh, you were sleeping with six people in a room. 
um, um, to, to places where uh, the food was amazing um, and you came off the rig 10 kilos heavier. Um, so there, there's, there's, um, there's been times where I've seen people uh, come offshore, get the chopper out and then realise it's not for them um, just because they felt so ostracised, they couldn't use their mobile phone, um, you know, they had to queue up to use to use a phone. Uh, I remember back when uh, I first started in Australian waters, um, you, you'd get on the internet and the internet was that slow. You'd have a game of patience in between a page loading uh, just because it used to take so long. So uh, I, I believe, having not been offshore for now 12 years, um, that the internet's are way better uh, and communication's a lot easier. So um, you probably shouldn't, won't feel as ostracised uh, from society. But uh, yeah, um, you've got to look after your, your mental health, especially in these days, I think. Yeah, definitely. I um, I believe that now, you know, a lot of guys, you know, the internet's not great. You know, it's not a, it's not Japan speed internet, but, um, you know, it is top possible to do FaceTime and might not be with the visuals all the time depending on where you are but yeah you definitely get those commun- you can have that communication with your family at home and it and all the people I've spoken to it is um, it's a lifestyle choice that everybody needs to be on board with uh, your partner uh, wife husband whoever it might be um, and and yourself because they're whoever's left at home is doing a lot potentially doing a lot of heavy lifting um, while you're away and then I know when you come back especially if you're doing, you know, a swing offshore in WA for guys who don't know the sort of distances. If you're up in Caratha or if you're offshore, you're going to be flying into Caratha on the helicopter and then you're down to Perth yes. on a flight, yeah. which is a couple of hours. And then and then you've got your faffing around. Hopefully you manage to be there for the afternoon flight. If not, you're catching the red eye at midnight back over to, um, back over to Sydney and that's a four-hour flight coming back and then uh but there's a time difference yeah i never understand how 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 the flight on the way back especially the midnight flight is so quick like yeah it's downhill i I mean obviously uh, must be the winds are in the (laughs) right direction but um i always wanted them to make it slower because uh you'd only ever get like three hours sleep if you were lucky if you um whereas if they could have perhaps taken off earlier, flown a bit slower. Um, so you could actually get like a, a five-hour <laughs> sleep. Uh, I mean, I did the red eye for years and years um, and um, it used to really muck you around for a, a couple of days afterwards, um, especially if you got back home and the missus said, uh, right, you need to take your daughter to school, you need to go and do this, you need to walk the dogs, um, and you're strained to a day of trying to make up for the two or three weeks you've been away. Well, well, that's it, isn't it? You know, you're you're coming back and you don't know what the, what your missus has been having to deal with. She doesn't know what you've been having to deal with, but now you're both together and it's like, okay, can you do this, this and this? And you're, you're you know, hanging out because you, uh, you've just done a, you know, with a, a few hours sleep in between, but you've been on the move for the last 24 hours pretty much. Oh, yeah, you, um, normally you'd have, normally have done a full uh, shift um, depending if you if you are offshore or what have you, but then offshore if you'd worked the worst one is if you'd worked nights, you then didn't have enough time to go to sleep till say let's say the chopper was at ten o'clock. Um, so you'd be up throughout the night, take a ten o'clock chopper. Hopefully you'd get down to Perth in time for the afternoon flight. But there was quite a few times where. Uh, they just closed it, and then you had to wait. Um, what was it? Uh, eight hours until the uh, midnight flight. Um, so by the time you got home, you were absolutely wrecked. And the hardest bit about that is you're sitting, most probably sitting in the business lounge, staring at free beer, trying not to drink it because you know it's going to ruin you the next day. I look. Uh, I learned early on that. Um, uh, I mean, normally what, there would be quite a few people who would uh, see uh, the, the business lounge and go, yeah, great, free beer. 
But I, I worked out that uh, it, it would actually punish me more having lots of beers um, and then going home. So uh, I think uh, I, I stopped drinking and taking the free beer quite early on. So uh, I am partial to the uh, pizza yeah, nice. in the uh, platinum lounge. Um, <laughs> but, I think I did. I think I did too many trips over there. The pizza got too much for me. I, uh, I've, I've walked away from that a few times. But yeah, I definitely hear you on the. Um, trying not to get in that habit of uh, you know you may have done two weeks offshore where you've been you've been dry. So you're the first beer that you see. You you know guys just jump straight into it, and before you know it, you you're six beers in, and uh, and they're refusing you on the flight because you're drunk because you haven't had a beer for two weeks. I oh, look. Um, there's especially the overseas ones. Uh, I remember. Uh, when we were in Equatoria, Guinea, um, you'd, you'd be offshore for, say, six weeks. You'd get back on shore. You'd have an evening on the island before um, flying out. And, yeah, uh, there were numerous times where we drank way too much. You then have to be trying sober for the 5 o'clock flight. And quite often what they do is um, they would choose a few people who were the worst for wear Kick, the, kick them off the flight or not accept them so that they could then sell the tickets to, to someone else. Um, meanwhile, that person, because they weren't able to make their flight, gets stacked. So, um, yeah, uh, I learned, uh, learned after seeing lots of people losing their jobs that um, it was best to try and uh, stay stay sober. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, obviously, you, uh, you know, we didn't really talk about it much, but you did year level one, you mentioned back at... Um well, I, I sort of remember that back at the uh, Arethusa with specialist and innovation. Um, and then uh, did you just sort of do your ones, do your twos, do your threes? Was it sort of the, well, hang on, I, I know how old you are, so it would have been six months and uh, th- uh, 500 hours, wouldn't it, back then? Uh, yes, yes, it was. Um, look, uh, I think uh, I was working for a specialist. I remember being a, a level one Um and I had, was working with uh, Dave Stock, who was also a level one. Um, and we had a, another level one, and I was running the job. Um, so it was kind of, um, it was a progression to, to two-year level three. But to be honest, um, I, at the time, I didn't actually want to do my level three. Um, uh, but because there's, you still you, you still don't. Every time it comes up, oh, you're there refusing yeah. to do it. You don't well, want to look, do it. Well, <laughs> look, I always feel that uh, reassessments are actually harder than doing your assessments for the first time. Uh, there's way more pressure on you, um, or, or self-perceived pressure. Um, yep. I mean, uh, you uh, if you've been a level three for three years or six years. Um, you should know what to, to do and you shouldn't be making any mistakes. Um, and so you have the perceived pressure that uh, if you fail, that there'll be a lot of people going, oh, I knew that person. He was never good enough to be a level three. So, um, and look, uh, in the early days, I mean, how many career assessments have I done now? Seven? Um, I've been a level three for 21 years. Um, back in the early days, uh, um, Assessors could have a massive chips on their shoulder, and you never quite knew what they were going to throw at you. Um, it has now become way, way more structured. Um, and look, um, there's a lot of people who I had a few people assess me that um, I've brought through the ranks from level one up to the level three. Um, uh, to be honest, there's a way more. I wouldn't say chilled, more uh, more lenient, but more structured, more laid back, not trying to add the pressure on. Um, Honestly, it's uh, it, it, as you say, it's more structured. You know, you know what's going to come. Um, you know what's on the list. Uh, whereas, you know, back when, you know, back when I did my first level three, the first time I saw the loop or the large re-anchor rescue was on my assessment because that was something that they did in Scotland and it hadn't made it down into England at that time, you know. So there's there was all these things. But 
you just they wanted to see that you could improvise back then you didn't have you didn't have the gear you know you were running around on stops and shunts and half threading stops because you had to ascend on it because you didn't want to be on your crawl and all this improvisation that we did and they wanted to see that you had those skills whereas now with the development of the gear and it's about having the systems and the and they want to see that a level three can plan you know that's the thing and obviously you're you're 20 years in, you can do that. And, and that's what it's more about nowadays. It's not about how quickly you can rescue somebody out of the loop. Um, it's more about planning. So if someone got themselves stuck in a loop, you wouldn't need to go to them anyway. You could just release the loop and um, rescue them from there, uh, which is way more better than, um, I mean, I'm sure you had assessments where you'd turn up, you'd go and, go to, to do a rescue and they go right see all that that gear on your belt you're allowed two carabiners a duck and a a descender right now go and rescue them um yep whereas now um they're not out to to catch you out um they're just there to make sure that you can work safely and that um you can actually get people out of the rescue that's it all, all you got to do is be able to count to three, mate. That's uh, that's all you need to be able to do in rope access. I mean, um, one of the things I, I would like to, to say, I would say the over the years, I, I was very fortunate when I started with rope access uh, when I did because we came through the ranks without any trades, uh, whereas now uh, I think it's quite a lot harder to, to get into the, the business especially offshore, um, if you don't have a trade. But then I also believe there's a lot lot of tradespeople now who are becoming level threes. Um, but because they've been doing their trade, haven't necessarily been exposed to all the things that we were exposed to. Um, so uh, I feel like very fortunate that I started when I did. Yeah, definitely agree with that. I don't think we would have, you know, travelled through the same road if we were doing it today. Um, you know, the amount, of, the amount of things that I've rewired across the UK and across Australia with an electrician standing twenty metres away from me telling me how to do it. You know, I'm not an electrician, but that's how it needed to be done back in the day um, because they didn't have a, a tradesman who could get to the location um, or you know whatever the other things may be. But saying that, obviously you. Um, you were talking about your tank inspections and stuff, so you ran down the NDT road and got some qualifications there. Is that sort of your main area that you were working in with the uh, with the offshore stuff and uh, and at the gas plant? Uh, look, uh, definitely offshore. Um, uh, I, I mean, I was a level three, uh, normally looking after people who who uh, who had the NDT calls, so. Uh, I know that was the case in the North Sea, um, and it was just good to have uh, the NDT calls, which uh, definitely later, uh, when I moved over to Australia, helped me out massively. Um, I think uh, the the gas plant um, uh, at the beginning, yes, um, but then I kind of moved more into the uh, well. It wasn't a manager. It was basically an overall supervisor of all the teams, etc. And then um, I then moved into a supervisor of a, a department. And um, I quite like the, uh, the the China be an auntie and put out fires. I think would be uh, <laughs> um, you, you definitely have a lot of characters and just trying to get the, the best out of people um, and also um, trying to make sure that everybody's okay, both uh, being happy because uh, uh, quite often you find that, um, well, across the industry, uh, both onshore and offshore, um, you turn up to work. Um, it's not like an office where you kind of really find out a lot about people so you can quite easily uh, work with somebody and re- know very little about them. Um, about what's going on in their home life and um, there, there's been quite a few people um, who've had major stuff going on in the background, divorces etc and, and you haven't known about it so um, I think uh, it's 
good to try and uh, uh, speak with your colleagues and find out their home life, which is um, one of the things uh, which was kind of part of my role at the gas plant, just to making sure that um, uh, people's lives were going in the right direction. Yeah, nice. Sounds like a uh, good thing. I think uh, from memory, weren't you there so long that you ended up with a Woodside email address? I did. I was actually quite upset wow. when they took that off me. Um, yeah, that, that makes you a lifer if you get one of those, buddy. Uh, well, no, no, what makes you a lifer is when you get um, full-time gold or uh, Qantas. Oh, uh, the... Lifetime um, gold, sorry. Li- lifetime, lifetime gold member yeah. for Qantas. And did, did the 10 years, did you achieve that one? Oh, easily, easily. Well, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's quite uh, interesting you mentioned that. There's a... Uh, Qantas are doing an auction today. Um, I know this is going out a bit later, so people would have missed it. They're auctioning off two A380 business class seats because they've refurbished all the A380 planes. So you know the the business class seats that you get. They're auctioning off two of those. They've built a frame that they can sit on so you can have them in your man cave or wherever. So uh, I had a, I had a quick look at it this morning. They started at 350,000 points. It was over a million points for the two seats. So... Uh, if you want to relive your flying in and out all the time, you can grab yourself a couple of those, buddy. Oh, look, maybe up your street, but uh, I think I'll, <laughs> I'll be glad not to fly. Yeah, it's uh, it's different. Uh, it's definitely different going to airports now. I've done it a few times. I've been over to New Zealand a couple of times, but yeah, it uh, seems to be a different experience. Not as fun as it used to be. But that's COVID, I guess. Yes. Uh, roll on when we can all go back to living our lives as normal. Yes. Definitely, uh, and we're uh, we become one country again, rather than the uh, divided country that we're at at the moment. Yes, I'm waiting for uh, somebody to decide to start building walls at borders and stuff. You know, it seems to be getting a bit crazy. But... Our walls are just so yesterday. I think they were going to start looking at building trenches. <laughs> um, they, uh, at one point, I think they were going to try and get uh, 200 tugboats and pull WI out a couple of kilometres. <laughs> Yeah, nice. Yeah, nice. Um, so, uh, as a piece of advice for somebody who's done twenty odd years, uh, what advice would you give somebody who's getting into the industry and and is looking at going and doing swings? You know, two on, two off, or as you've had in the past, you walk in through the door and then turn around half an hour later and go back out onto another job, or swapping overalls on a platform. Um, wearing one set one day and then not even getting on the chopper and putting another set on. Um, what advice would you give them if they're looking to head down that road? What would, or what sort of advice would you have liked to have known before you did it? That's a, a good question. I think the problem is because so much has changed since when I first started. Uh, when somebody asked me how to get into the industry, um, I actually, uh, I think it's just a case of being at the right place at the right time ringing that person just when they're trying to uh, man up a, a job. I think uh, I'd say um, go there with your eyes wide open, uh, realising that um, it's not going to be probably as nice as you imagine, and then it can only be better. Oh, and don't eat all the ice creams. <laughs> yes. Is that, in the, is that in the North Sea or is that an Australian thing? Um, that, oh, look, the, the food on... Uh, the Australian rigs, uh, some of them, um, yeah, they would have a, a chest of ice creams and sweets. And yes, you uh, know many a person come back home five to ten kilograms heavier than what they went out. Um, I do remember the North Sea. There was, um, it was. Uh, I worked on some platforms where I think the chef was nicknamed Billy One Sauce because it didn't matter what it looked like; it all tasted the same. <laughs> Um, but then there was, um, I, I've got to tell this one, uh, BP platforms had, um, you, you'd turn up, you'd have, you'd, uh, at lunchtime, you'd um, have your choice of, they'd normally have a, two different types of roasts there and various different meals. Um, but my favourite one would be, they'd have this um, big gigantic wok um, and um, they'd have some pasta, which would be probably semi-cooked they stick it in kind of hot water and cook it that last bit 
they'd stick all these ingredients in front of you. You know, you choose what you wanted into the wok, throw in a sauce, throw in the pasta, and they give you this pasta in what can only be described as a salad bowl. Um, you'd layer loads of parmesan on, um, and it would taste absolutely amazing. And then you'd roll out of there in absolute agony from being too full. You'd lie on your uh, your bed for the remainder of uh, your, your lunch, just trying to be able to breathe again um, before having to go back to work. Um, but yeah, there's there's some places where the food was amazing, and there were some places where food was absolutely diabolical. Yeah, putting your uh, putting your harness on after uh, after a big lunch, and the waist belt pushing against the bottom of your guts, and you having to get on the ropes for another three or four hours is never fun times. Um, I'm sure you've done. Um, you said you travelled on a, a lot of FBSOs and stuff like that, um, going down the sewers and whatever. I'm sure that the uh, I'm, I'm guessing that the chefs weren't um, weren't from the English uh, school of uh, of cookery, and so you would have been dealing with uh, some exotic foods on some of those trips as well. Um, I think uh, there was one where the crew and the captain were Indian, and so we'd have curry for lunch, curry for dinner, and curry for breakfast, which you know it was a great. Um, Experience uh, got a bit tiresome after about day nine or ten, especially as you couldn't have your can of Stella with it like you would have in uh, in the south of England back in the day. Well, actually, um, with the, the the oil tankers, as long as they weren't uh, in port and they were offshore, you could actually drink. So there's a couple of times where I worked with Scottish people, Mike Donald, um, <laughs> uh, and other people, and um, I think uh, we drunk their their cellar that dry a beer because we buy a case of beer and then you know Scottish people can always put it away um, I think I was a, a lightweight back then um, and then working in a, a hot tank where you'd uh, have the last bit of moisture sucked out of you I found it incredibly hard but the uh, Scottish people they seem to be able to um, still uh, operate the following day uh, which it's made. it's her- it's heritage i think i think it's in their blood um yes. talking about um being able to operate uh the day after a few beers um there's one story that i think i need to go back to because you were talking about would, a few of the jobs we worked Milton on King? it may possibly be a um back in when would that have been 99 this would have been uh just before i headed over to so it was the summer of 99 before I headed over to Australia in 2000. I was working on the ski slope that they built in Milton Keynes with a bunch of roofers up on the roof, babysitting them, getting in all sorts of trouble. Um, and then Sean Cadogan, who was uh, one of the uh, estimators at Specialist, um, I'm sure you remember, he came up and was looking at some other jobs that they needed doing around the place. And one of them was working just underneath the uh, the roof on lying, some, lying some, on a really thin beam. Yes. Yeah, so yes. there was a, there was an eye beam that, and the only way to get there was to sort of be cows tails, and you were lying on top of it and moving along. And I can't I can't even remember what you were doing, but I had to send in another crew to uh, to do this, and obviously it was inside. And was it was it your birthday? It, it was my birthday. <laughs> That's um, right. So, so you got to go. I think it was well, me and Dave, Dave Stott were hanging on the the beam underneath the roof. You yep. were, you and somebody else were on top of the roof. I was on the roof, but um, the day after we went out for a couple of beers, it rained, so I couldn't go to work because it was absolutely uh, I don't think it, was, it, was, it was too windy. Was it? Um, and but what we, what you're also neglecting to tell is the fact that uh, back then um, there was no. You know, companies didn't necessarily give you accommodation and we were all dossing in a container. Yep. Um, so it was my birthday and you you guys talked me into going out. Um, we then um, went out and I had quite a few. I had quite a few, more than I should have. We then went back to the uh, container. I think um, it was a bit of Hilarity on the way back, but we won't go into that for legal reasons. I think uh, I think you've got a uh, condition being an alcoholic kleptomaniac. You drink alcohol and then you come home with 
road cones and wheelbarrows and whatever else you seem to find on the way from my recollection. Yeah, the, the, that was definitely <laughs> a period. Uh, uh, I, I, know, I know you've grown up since then, but you know. Yes. Uh, I'm not saying nothing more, Your Honour. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so we, we slept in the container. Uh, it being, basically, I remember it being like an oven because it was a hot day the following day. So the last bits of moisture had been kind of sucked out of you. Then uh, we'd all gone out. You and the other guy got told that um, it was too windy so the crane wouldn't be operating. So you could go back to bed, um, whereas me and Dave stopped underneath the roof, were able to carry on working, not that I wanted to. Um, and I, I remember uh, being definitely the worst for wear, leaning on the stomach, wearing a harness, trying to do these brackets up while hanging over a beam um, and then needing to go to the toilet. So quickly setting up a set of ropes to then descend down, to run down the ski slope ramp to the uh, construction toilets. Um, it was never a pretty sight. I'd say that was probably probably my worst day ever. And I think the fact that you and the other guy were lying in the container, taking it easy, uh, only added to that. I, I think I remember it would have been about maybe 11.30. I did come walking up the slope just to make sure you guys were okay. Yes, yeah. I do remember that. You, you gleefully pointed out that uh, we were there and you weren't. Yes. Uh, uh, and I think possibly at that time I was looking rather green. Yeah, you weren't, looking, you weren't looking too great. I can definitely remember that. Yeah, fun times, fun times. Not that you could do that nowadays. No. No, I, I don't have the staying power for that, and yeah, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't recommend it. But yeah, but it was your birthday, so you know things have to happen. Yes, it, it, there are rules. Indeed. Well, I reckon that sort of uh, brings us nicely to an end with some uh, incriminating stories with everybody involved. Um, anything else you want to sort of chat about, or anything look, you think I, we missed? The only thing I would like to say: there are a couple of things. One, look, I've had the great fortune to work with some amazing guys over the years um uh, definitely had a, a great bunch of guys working for us at uh, kgp and um uh, i'd say the amount of stuff and I, I still learn stuff from people now uh even people who haven't been necessarily in the industry for a long time they, they can look at things differently uh and i'm always trying to try and be as open-minded as i can um but I also would like to just point out um, that during these COVID times, um, the mental health of fellow workers and colleagues, especially people you haven't spoken to in a while, just uh, give them a message. I know at one point I was going through a bit of a dark place with the, the whole uh, gas plant thing and um, speaking with Kieran um, helped me understand that uh, I wasn't the only other person uh, who's doing it tough with borders being closed. So uh, definitely reach out to one another. We're a small community. Um, I was starting to get quite large now. Um, and it was uh, terrible news about a, a fellow rope access technician uh, recently um, who, uh, who uh, unfortunately uh, took his life. Um, so definitely look out for one another. Check on one another is all I'd like to add to that. Yeah, well said, sir. Well said. Yeah, it's... Um... And to try and times having those conversations, you uh, even if you're at work or or not reaching out to people, yeah, definitely, definitely a thing that we need to do more of. Well, thank you, sir. On that note, uh, thanks for taking the time to come in and chat with us. Um, always great to chat with you, and uh, yeah, there was a bit of reminiscing going on there as well. Hopefully, uh, the people listening in uh, enjoyed hearing some uh, some old rope access boys talking about how it used to happen back in the day. But, um, yeah, thanks a lot, my friend. And you, Lee, always a pleasure. Stay safe, mate. Cheers. Bye. Thanks again, Alastair. That was awesome catching up. A few uh, a few stories from many years ago, which is always uh, interesting to chat about. Um, a lot of stories missed as well. I think there's things that we couldn't talk about on the podcast. Maybe we'll uh, get an episode together where we bring a few guys in and talk about some of the horror stories and the funny stories from years gone by. As always, guys, uh, reach out to us if there's anything you think we should chat about. 
You can find us on Facebook, Rope Access Tips, Tricks and Chats. Jump on the website, ratac.net. Drop me an email, drop me a message. Happy to chat to anybody. If there's anybody you think we should chat to, let us know. Um, always happy to sit down and chat to people. And as always, tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Let them know that we've got some uh, good information here. But anyway, for now, stay safe. I'll see you soon. Cheers. <laughs>